Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The Team Never Quit podcast is brought to you by... Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team... You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The biggest honor of my military career was being called to be an instructor at our fighter weapons school, formerly now called the U.S. Air Force Weapons Instructor Course, but basically it's the Air Force Top Gun Program. Never quit. Team never quit. Team never quit. Radio. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Don't so buckle up, Buttercup. Welcome back to another episode of Team Never Quit Podcast. Thank you all for listening, watching, viewing, and subscribing. If you want to stay up to date with what we've got going on, check out our social medias at team underscore never quit. All right, let's kick it off with our Patreon question of the day, which is... What holidays did your family really go all out for when you grew up? And do you still do it for the same holidays today? <laughs> well, Hunter is our son, so he can answer that. Well, I know 100% Thanksgiving is the craziest holiday for us. Yeah. Always been. We have a squad of yeah. friends, family, even people we don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> coming out to the to our ranch and <laughs> we do we like friends bring friends it, it becomes, yeah. yeah it becomes a whole mini city at yeah. our ranch like we have this kind of big open invite to our friends and family for thanksgiving and people will bring like their people like oh it's thanksgiving let me bring my family which is awesome we love it we love getting to meet everybody and um thankfully we have the room for it so it's just it's such an awesome dynamic Marcus's favorite is Christmas by far. So we do like Griswold's family Christmas at the house, but it's really just us as like our immediate family. We don't do a big, like huge family Christmas since we do the big, huge family Thanksgiving. What do you got? So from the Team Teshner standpoint, uh, Christmas by far, bar none, uh, growing up, it meant coming back to St. Louis, which is the uh, the global headquarters for our family, if, if you will. <laughs> and we'd come in from wherever dad was stationed. Uh, we'd have the Christmas Eve with 
his side of the family, Christmas Day with my mom's side of the family, those were the happiest of times because it was the one time that I got a chance to be with our family since we were always living someplace other than where all of my cousins were. So um, happiest of, of memories from back in the day. Oh, that's fun. What about you, John? It's going to be Christmas as well. That's our big blowout. Um, Thanksgiving is kind of the holiday where family members will trade off and go to the in-laws. And so not everyone will always be at every Thanksgiving, but Christmas pretty much everybody's always there. We have a big, we get up in the morning, go to my parents' house. We kept that tradition alive. I take the kids over to my mom's and we open presents there and then we'll open presents with my wife's mom. And then we'll go to the big Christmas thing with my mom's family and all that. See, we don't like to leave at Christmas. We, we want to be in our house. One of the holidays you have to be at the house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we you know don't yeah we don't want to go anywhere and we get invited and thank you for the invites but we just don't we just like to christmas is our time to just really soak it up everybody has house. to be in their onesie you don't clean up the yeah. wrapping paper <laughs> yeah all day uh, from all october day. 31st excuse me october 1st yeah through halloween that's that's halloween month you're supposed to watch a scary movie on the tv a different one every that's day right. you know you get your costume all planned out you decorate and then then you have Thanksgiving. All month of Thanksgiving. And all, all month, month of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving movies and getting prepped for that. And it's this build, whole build up. And then December, you have Christmas. January is that kind of down. And then February, I think each month is designed for something. Like we have basketball and sports throughout the summer. Football comes online. Just about the time guys are going crazy through all that. You know what I mean? And I added as many traditions as I possibly could to the family. Yeah. Hoping some of them stick. Yeah, he has a traditions book. I mean, I writes, wrap the outside yeah. of the kids' bedrooms and in, in, uh, wrapping paper. So the first thing, <laughs> first present I get is them, right? They come running out of there. That's the best. <laughs> and then I do that. So many of those. We all jump in the pond uh, well, that's my, on Christmas yeah. Eve Eve. Yeah, a tradition. I've, we've done that since I was a boy. Every Christmas Eve Eve, we go jump in the water as a, as a ritual cleanse, right? And then there's a bunch of stuff. Now, I have to say about Thanksgiving for us, we actually do a 10-day Thanksgiving. It's the, the like, Friday before and then the whole week, and we don't go back it's, until it's Sunday. Every day is an awesome meal. And we have, like, <laughs> all of these meals planned yeah, out, yeah. and we do a turkey trot. So all of those haters on Thanksgiving turkey trots... <laughs> Every it's year. so much fun. I can promise do you, I don't think the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. I will throw one one additional point in. Now that you mentioned all these, even turkey trots, uh, I've tried to impose the Teshna Christmas on my own nuclear family. Right now, we were leaving New Mexico one year to go back to St. Louis because that's what I know as being the best Christmas ever. And our oldest son Michael's in tears. He's Aww. like, Dad, how can you do this? How is Santa Claus going to find us? And it was at that. <laughs> point when I realized that maybe my version of Christmas was a little bit different from what it was that they wanted from us. And so mm -hmm. we stopped traveling on Christmas specifically for the kids. And now it's become, although it's a little bit easier now that we're in St. Louis, but prior to that, it became exactly what it is that you're describing. Yeah. Something that was local to us, Whoa, something that we yeah. ended up doing because different experience, different time frame, And yeah. uh, so be it. Oh, I love it. That All right. Awesome. All right. So we've got a really great guest for you guys today. Robert Cujo Teschner is an award-winning uh, fighter pilot. He's an award-winning writer with two number one best-selling books. He holds advanced degrees in operational art and science and national security strategy and extensive experience in tactical planning and execution organizational leadership. He's also served as a U.S. Air Force's expert 
and post-mission debriefing. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Can I tell you what a joy it is to be here with you today? Very excited. I appreciate that, man. That's going to be fun. It's going to be fun, man. I was going through your file. Obviously, it's extensive. <laughs> if there's more than one page in here, that's when I know I'm dealing with something that's really got to do some work. So, but, but the way we like to do it is just introducing everybody to you. Like I said, we're about to introduce you to our team, make you famous. Awesome. And uh, if, uh, where, you, where do you come from? Yeah, so uh, I've always claimed St. Louis is home, but St. Louis doesn't really accept me. I wasn't born here. Uh, Dad was in the Air Force. Dad served as an intelligence officer in Vietnam and then became a Jajavica general and took us around the world uh, as, part of his, as part of his career, which I loved. I loved being part of the Air Force family. So we've lived all over the place. Um, I'll always gravitate to St. Louis because this is where Dad was born and raised. And I'll talk about my mother separately. So, I mean, was grandfather in the military? How far back do y'all go? All yeah, so grandfather was in the military. All he way, yeah. he was able to be a fighter pilot right at the end of World War II. So he finished oh, wow. training, war ended, didn't get a chance to participate. Uh, but my grandfather on my mother's side was in World War II as a member of the Croatian resistance. So mom was born in Zagreb, Croatia. And she was a war refugee. And her story of how it is that she comes to the United States ought to be turned into a movie. It's a very, very inspirational story. It's a story of maintaining hope when there was none and uh, continuing to fight to get to where it is that you need to be. So that's something I, I'd be happy to share with you. But ultimately, there's different ways of serving in, uh, in the Teshner household. And then our generation, my brothers and I, we all joined the military as well. How many siblings do you have? Uh, two. Anthony is my middle brother. John's my youngest brother. Anthony was Navy. John was Army. Nice. Nice work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have across the board in my family, too. I got a cousin lives across the street. She was an Apache pilot. And then, I mean, just it, it makes for interesting family reunions if you have it those. It does. It does, right? I, it all does. All the time interesting. Because there's always something going on with, with the military, whether it's sports or whether we're fighting or whether just there's anything in between. That's cool. Exactly. We all have that, man. Yeah, and, and we, I mean, we pick on each other constantly, which oh. I absolutely love. The military I mean, the, makes the you good at that. It does. It, it, it hones those st- skills oh, very bro. accurately. Man, I'm so you get me fired up. I'm not even on point, man. <laughs> yeah, it does that for sure. So, when did you decide you were going to serve? Uh, as soon as Dad decided. That, actually, I'll take it back. Uh, okay. Star yeah. Wars, 1977. When Luke Skywalker wants to go join some academy and then go join the rebellion, that that resonated with me for whatever reason. I heard that. <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal. And yeah, then yeah. fast forward, 1986, uh, Top Gun comes out, and I saw it twice. First time was in a German movie theater, which was all dubbed in German, which was weird. And then the second time was at Spangdalem Air Base with a bunch of Air Force fighter pilots, which oh, yeah. didn't matter. At the end of that movie, at the base theater, everybody's stood up afterwards and just started screaming like hooting and hollering just fired up yeah and that's where i knew as a young kid i had to go do this yeah and thank so when you dad, tom cruise for saving america <laughs> that's right that's exactly right and I when dad retired this, i remember man, being but cujo and i are saying thanks for saving america <laughs> tom yeah <laughs> and when dad retired uh i was so disappointed because i really felt like the military was my family I grew up, you know, around oh, oh, it. Talk we about were, that. Yeah. I've never yeah. heard anybody say that. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, I felt like the military was my family. It's what I knew. 
I knew that I identified with the other kids that were being uprooted in three-year increments. And so when we'd show up at a new place, I knew that those people were going through the same thing that I was. I also knew that it was a bit of an adventure. You know, some people were upset about the moves. I thought it was an adventure. I loved going someplace new. Some of them were harder than others, but all of the time it was an adventure. And then I felt like you knew, you knew that your family was going to take care of you when you arrived at the next place. And so it struck me that no matter where we were on the planet, somehow we were always welcome. It was a special experience. And, and that kind of stuck with me. When dad announced that he was retiring, I was a little bit depressed. I was like, no, you can't do this. This is our family. And so I announced the day that he retired, I announced that I'm getting in. That's how it went. That's how it. old were you? Oh, gosh. I was a sophomore, sophomore in high school. Yeah, sophomore in high school. So nobody ever talks about them. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a movie or read a book about them or anything but the brats. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the guys will get it. Some of the brats will go in afterwards, but then a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. They just kind of hang out and go their own ways. You and you'll catch it in conversation. They normally don't bring it up, but they're their own little fraternity. That's right, the brats, man. It's so interesting, and that's such a good outlook that you have. Like that, it was an adventure. Is that something that you, your parents, kind of whispered in your ear at a young age? Like this is this is going to be fun, and as a way of like encouragement, getting over the fear, or you just naturally had that? I think I naturally had it. You know, and I had a globe-trotting family to begin with. Again, mom was a war refugee, lived in Germany as the GIs were taking care of the war refugees, handing out chocolate, handing out little trinkets, trying to help these kids who were displaced, had no, you know, clear future ahead of them. Everything was kind of downtrodden. You know, she grew up in that, ended up in Brazil, learned, you know, multiple different languages along the way trying to get over here. So it wasn't it didn't feel like it was anything that unnatural. But the, the, the part that was most interesting to me was, was that I thought it was always cool to hop on an airplane, to go someplace new, to be in a different, different situation, to meet new people along the way, especially internationally. And I got so much from it. Uh, and it became so ingrained in who I was that I couldn't really see not happening. And in fact, I felt bad for those who didn't get that experience. Mm. You know, I even felt a little bit bad. I mean, my cousins, I mean, I have plenty of cousins who have grown up in St. Louis, have never really left St. Louis, traveled around a little bit, but they haven't experienced anything other than that. And I, I've always felt like they're missing a little bit. You know, there's something about learning international culture and understanding how we all interrelate as human beings that I think is really important. Yeah, that's so neat. Oh, it's a it's a great skill set to have. Like those it people is. who want to grow up and have that Jason Bourne kind of James Bond life <laughs> mentality, that's how you have to get that. That's right. The people teach you that. And if you can survive, and you hear about the young ones, they'll throw a backpack on and go across and do the, and do the walks and the, the hostels and stuff like that. That takes some stones. Mm-hmm. Right? It does. That builds personality. That, that, there's something to that. Amen. And, yeah. and, and what I found is, is that with our family, though, you know, the oldest said, hey, don't don't uproot me for Christmas, dad, because Santa Claus is not going to find me. He was probably four when he had that had that realization. Um I just had a conversation with Michael yesterday. So we've got five children. He's, he's the oldest. He's 17. And he said, Dad, you know, this is the longest we've ever lived anywhere. And if you, if you decided that we needed to move someplace else, I'm all in because it just, it's, it's part of who I am, he says to me. So even this generation of Teshners has, has gotten that ingrained, which I think is, is pretty neat. You know, yeah. we lived as a family in Greece. We lived as a family in Germany. We've got friends in multiple different countries with experienced places that you don't typically you know, in a, in a course of a lifetime experience. And what a rich, what a wonderful background that is. 
for yeah. the for the children. Oh, they don't even know what they don't know. They don't know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. The best way I could say that because if you until that's you right. actually get your butt out there and to me, when as soon as we step off the plane, I can smell it. I, the cut yes. the air smells different to me. I know immediately when I'm outside the country. And, that's right. And, and then when it, those realities, you can actually go back in time. I mean, that, that was a beautiful thing about it, what I saw. And that's why it feels differently when you travel around and the time change, because you can travel back to a village that was stuck back in the 1900s. It's still there. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely right. still there. And you can talk to the people and you can understand kind of how if you, not at a young age, you can't appreciate that. I think it takes some reflecting time to put all that together as well. Life does that to you. But man, what a blessing it is to travel. Mm-hmm. It is. Totally, and uh, and I'm very very grateful that my family just was into that. I was I was fortunate to have that piece of the branch of the family be the one that I grew up in, and it it affected my brothers and I tremendously in a good way, all positive. College, then talk about that. Yeah, so. Um, Again, going back to Luke Skywalker, he wanted to go to some mysterious academy that he never had a chance to go to. Uh, and for whatever reason, that stuck with me. And then when we were, again, stationed at Spangdalem Air Base in Germany, uh, I remember one day being someplace on base and dad saying, hey, look over there. They're, those two uh, gentlemen, they're at the Air Force Academy. They're cadets. And so that, that kind of reinforced the Luke Skywalker thing. And then just practically speaking, when I'm coming into, hey, it's time to join the, the service uh, time frame. Uh, we're shifting strategy. Like we're about to have a totally different dynamic. The Soviet Union's crumbling. Um, the military's downsizing. Uh, we don't need as many people in the service any longer, or so say um, you know the, the, the leaders. And so the Air Force is kind of not really that keen on building new pilots. And so I figured if you're going to become a, if you want to be a fighter pilot, the best place to go would be the Air Force Academy. And so I made that my all-in push. I knew that that was the thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to fly fighter aircraft. Dad was in the Air Force. It just made sense. And so uh, I applied for the Air Force Academy and was promptly rejected. So um, <laughs> That's how you know you're supposed so, to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a bit of a, that was a, bit of a if bummer. If most people knew where the Air Force Academy was, everyone would try to get in there. <laughs> that place it's, is so cool. Oh, man. It's a beautiful piece of oh, real estate. It's, it's not the funnest of places to go to school, but it's a fantastic piece of real estate yeah yeah well, i got hey, i got well, denied i, I got re- hear anything out of you air force when it comes to badass schools right it's not any fun are you <laughs> kidding me right now i mean <laughs> i was in the navy <laughs> Good marcus point. always yeah. talks Probably no one's audience me. cujo <laughs> know your audience bro i got a bunch of wings in the background <laughs> marcus always tells like young Men and, and Everybody. women that want to join the service, they always, you know, oh, I want to be a Navy SEAL, I want to be an Army Ranger, or whatever. And he's like, you need to go in the Air Force. Join the frickin they Air have Force, the best bases. Yeah. They have the bet. They take care yeah. of their people. <laughs> I didn't know anything about y'all. Just that y'all were the, had the wings. I, I get that. And, and went to outer space. I, that's all I thought, man. <laughs> I thought y'all had the coolest rides, and that was the best job. And it was way outside of my pay grade. Kind of deal in my wheelhouse. Yeah, and well, it was I almost it, it was almost out of my pay grade too, because my letter, the one that says, "Hey, thanks for applying," never said "try again." It, <laughs> it never even it, it didn't even give me the option to yeah, potentially. Tra- that, that was written in the bottom, dude. We wrote it on yeah. paper, like, bro. Don't don't ever ever. You're yeah. not getting no in. So did you just go straight into the Air Force then? No, I, I'm the tail end Charlie for my class. Like I got a I got a call from the senator's office a couple of weeks prior to basic training saying, Hey, congrats. 
And what that basically means is a bunch of other people had to, had to turn down their appointments. So I am I am the the last person or, I think. Or bro, they could have traded places to you and had a bet. Like, there's no way this dude's gonna make it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yep. Turns out to be the best guy we got going through. Yeah. yeah we, it, so it all works out in the end. And actually, it was a good it was a good strategic play because um, halfway through freshman year, the chief of staff of the Air Force came there and said, "I know, I know, I told you, or we told you that if you were pilot qualified on graduation, you were going to fly airplanes, but that's no longer the case." So they they significantly reduced the number of pilot slots, which fortunately, you know, for me, I still had three years to get my act together to try to compete for one of those things. The seniors, the juniors, uh, many of them were out of luck, which was very unfortunate. Wow, what year was that? I uh, graduated in 95, so this was 91 in 1995 that I was in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. Nice. An outstanding location for Service Academy. It was the 90s. How great were they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they shift, man. They shift up and down when it's like, hey, we don't have enough. We need, we, need, we got too many kind of deal. Ebbs and flows. That's right. It's, it's weird. So that's why they say you can never chase it. It kind of lands mm-hmm. on you. That's right. Timing's everything. So what's next after the Air Force Academy? Yeah, so I got one of uh, one of the pilot slots. I, I got my dream. I got to go to pilot training, went to Texas. So uh, I was uh, just up the road in Wichita Falls, Shepard Air Force Base, learned how to fly airplanes, realized that I was built for this, even though uh, I think most people, when looking at me, would have said there's no way that you can make this. I was 145 pounds, sopping wet when I graduated the academy. I was a stick figure, did not... I was not an athlete. I was, I was none of the things that you'd expect for somebody that was doing that. And yet I knew in my heart of hearts that this is what I was made to do. And so the more people told me that it wasn't going to happen, the more committed I was to proving them wrong. And then went to pilot training, everything clicked. It was one of the best years of my life. Like when you think, you know, if you could go back in time and relive something, you know, what would that be? I would 100% relive pilot training. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Went to an international pilot training uh, school. We had we had German students in the class, Italian students. We had some uh, Turkish students early on, Portuguese, whatever from the NATO Alliance. That you know, at the time, they were all going through school there, and it was such a wonderful experience. Loved it. Loved every minute of it. Miss it. Would love to go back and do it. That's awesome. So I've I've run across a couple of people that that I think that's unique. Like the, the people say, "Hey, man, whatever it is, you're wrapped in. If you don't look the part." But then there's inside, like, hey, I don't know why I know this, but I know my ass has to go do that. Yeah. I, I just know that. Like, everything in my life directs me into this path. Not only that, if I hear somebody tell me that I'm probably not the right person for the job, not, not if, like, if I get in there and screw up, that's different. But, like, if you sh- just showed up and someone tells you that, then that's how you know you're in the right spot kind of deal. I, I, I firmly believe that. So it's, it's funny how that works out. And when you say it clicks, it does. Yep. It's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. It's almost like the program's already in there. You just have to flip the breakers, right? You got you got to get in there and 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 work it a little bit, and then it'll it'll open up for you. It's part of it. It's like that feeling when people work out all the time. It's like, how do you get to that? It's like, well, there's something that comes with that. I mean, at a certain point, there's a feeling that that locks in. You know as well. You don't talk about bro, them guys. That, there's a feeling that comes with that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You kind of want to stay in that. Yes. And um, I think that's the way it is with most things. And we 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 do down here. If you put a little bit of effort into it, man, it'll give you that. It feeds you something. To the point where you know these days, and I, and I think we're very privileged. Our generation is that so many folks said, "Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you've done." 
I have a hard time accepting that on a number of levels. One of the levels is, is I got a chance to do what I knew was inside of me. Yeah. So like that. It, That's a good point. Like, Great point. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Makes yeah, you feel weird, this, right? It's very for what weird. You're doing, and be like, well, this is actually what I do. It's like, yes. Yeah. It's what I wanted That's to right. do. Yeah, right. They don't ever see us. I get that. Yeah. I get that part. It's weird. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is either, but. Mm -hmm. What did you start off flying? Uh, so. At the, at the Air Force Academy, the first thing that I flew was a sailplane uh, between freshman and sophomore years. So it's a glider, you, you know, going out there trying Talk to figure out how that. to not. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was fascinating. because I launched? Yeah, I want to hear about that. I had never flown an airplane before I went to the Air Force Academy. And now I'm behind. <laughs> I, mean, I got this little stick trying to fly an airplane with no motor. And you're trying to figure out how to get this thing from wherever the tow plane drops you off to the piece of landing strip over here off to your right. Does it have wheels so on a, it or is it just a flat? It, it, it does. It's got, oh, it's got okay. one wheel on the front, maybe some like glider things. And then on the, on the wings, they've got some stuff. Cause at some point the airplane tips over and, you know, in order to not destroy the wings, they've got something on the edges there, but that's it. It's a very, very basic thing. And it's stunning how quiet it is when there's no motor. It's also stunning how peaceful it is when there's no motor. And yeah. it's amazing to me how quickly you can become accustomed to not having a motor, figuring out how to land this thing effectively. And, you know, it wasn't but a few rides in that you solo. You solo. You're a 17, 18-year-old kid, and you're flying this thing solo. And it's so empowering. It's just an awesome experience. Um, there's something spiritual about it, and it, it really resonated with me. Like, that was the, yep, I'm in the right place. Everything here is worth it. So how if it's doesn't have a motor? How's it? I'm sorry, I'm very naive the wings to this. Are real long and it's light. It's really light. Yeah, so they tow it very light. It it's got a, it, the wings generate a lot of lift. Uh, the reason why Charles Lindbergh picked the uh, Colorado Springs location for the academy is it's great flying weather, and you've got a lot of funky things coming off the Rocky Mountains over there, which help you to be able. I mean, people who know how to soar, how to fly these sailplanes, they can stay airborne for hours just riding, riding the different currents of air and, and figuring out, you know, how to optimize things. So you have a, t you have a, a tow aircraft that pulls you up. At some point, you release uh, the rope that's been pulling you, and then, boom, you're on your own. And uh, it's, a, it's a very unique experience, something that I um, – it, it further incentivized me, like, stay with this. You know, you're on to something here. This is cool. Don't get to do this in most walks of life. Harness this. And so we went from that. The next airplane was a single-engine Cessna. Um, you know, propeller-driven airplane. I, hold and then on, when let's you get back up a to... second. I, what do people, because I mean, there's some people that freak out. You know as well as I do, you, you pop that cord off. There's no putting that sucker back. I guess that's what eliminates that. Like, hey, right. man, you only got one option once you pull that you've, cord. You've only got one option. I mean, if you can <laughs> I mean, figure out how to ride the waves yeah, and stay man, airborne forever, I suppose. But at some point, you do have to come back down. Right. And so, you know, the first couple of flights, you've got somebody in the, in the back, um, you know, an instructor. It's a fellow student, by the way. It's another cadet. And that person is there to make sure that you do things the right way. But whenever he or she says, you're clear to solo, it's go time. And, uh, and there you are. So it works. The program works. They've been doing it for decades, and it works brilliantly. And then, uh, and then when you get into pilot training, now you're flying jets. So everything's happening a lot faster. So it's basically like flying a paper airplane. I mean, yeah, the yeah. first one is like, it's like sitting in a paper airplane and with, with, with the ability to control the, the paper airplane. That's what you're dealing with. <laughs> so if you like doing the paper airplane yeah. thing, you would love. That's nuts. Yeah. You should try oh, yeah. it at scale. It is kind of nuts. It is kind of nuts. But, but I mean, most of the things that we do are, are kind of nuts, right? I mean, the, this military service thing uh -huh. involves doing a lot of things that are kind of nuts. At the age we're at. 
And you can't yes. appreciate that until we get older. It's like, man, the guy's driving the aircraft carrier 17, 18-year-old kid. Uh-huh. Right. The, the, the men in charge are in their 30s. Yeah, that's right. And then the bosses did the highest. That's a forty thing. Everyone thinks that you're ancient and dead. I was like, well, I, I really started living when I got in my forties. Exactly. I, I Isn't that stunning? That. How fast we accelerate Bro, leadership. How how war? fast we oh, accelerate man. somebody to realize their potential. How about that? I guess because yeah. you got somebody coming up behind them, kicking them in the ass, and then you you know you're always trying to do better or, or just do your job because somebody else. That's is right. Coming. It's a brilliant way to live life. It is. If you could smash that military concept without telling everybody they're in the military into life, because everyone's trying to help, you get into medical and dental. Not only do you have to, you have to go, and they take care of your ass and get you back on. It's the best. You get fed. I I mean, Americans wouldn't adopt that whole concept. We like having it around, but I don't know how you could. It was fun. I mean, I had a blast. I never thought I was in the military. I got lucky like that. I just never. I, I enjoyed all of it. You know, I, I have to say that I enjoyed it the most uh, when I was younger and when I was actually doing the missions. When I was when I was oh, sure. uh, at well, the tip yeah, of the spear, that's... that was the part that was that's the part that was fun. Well, you know, it was knowing fun for that us. you were... look what we had to do. I mean, we had that's a right. badass man. That's right. You came in right at the freaking and you had rank on you, so you that's why. I... But see, rank wasn't a privilege when it came to executing the mission. The further up you got in the chain, the further right, away right, you right. were from actually tactically executing the mission, and I think. I think that as I as I reflect back on my time, if I if there's a time period that I could freeze, it would be first lieutenant through captain because that's when I was oh, out there sure. doing the mission. And the and the nice thing about about the fighter world was was that we were the ones that were out there doing the mission. So that that to me that was the purest time in my professional career, and that's the time that I gravitate back to. Those are the happiest memories that I have for sure, bar none. Um, and that was that was where it was just pure. That's the pure, best. That's. That's so, the best, right? We have that too. It's almost because you know what your job is, and everyone else knows what your routine is. Like you get to work out, sleep, eat, and and feed, right. and fight. And you're being paid to be ready paid. to fight, and that was the part that was that was inspiring oh, to me. Best because when you have downtime, your ass better be doing your downtime. You didn't go find right. anything else to do. You knew what was what. That's the same way it was for us in the mafia. At E5, guys, like, hey, you know your jobs. If and if it's time to watch TV, that's what you do. You sleep, and then. And, but the fight was always different. That was what kept it real. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's right. So speaking of, you're, you're in pre-9-11. So let's talk about once 9-11 hits and you realize you're actually going to war. Yeah, so the, um, the interesting thing for, for my side of this, and I, was, I gave a presentation once uh, to a group, and they had a Vietnam veteran as their, as their sort of principal. And uh, this Vietnam veteran had flown almost 200 missions in Vietnam. Okay, so when I finished speaking, uh, the crowd, uh, they gave me a standing ovation. And I said, I cannot accept your standing ovation. Like, I, I'm not worthy of your standing ovation because the guy that <laughs> brought me in here, he's an actual legitimate hero. Like, he's done the job. My generation did not have that same kind of fight, not in the fighter forces. He came back and he said, hey, Cujo, uh, appreciate where you're coming from, but actually you can't pick your war. You did what you were called to do in your time frame. I did what I was called to do in my time frame, and you would have done the same thing that I did had you been born in my time frame. And I came back and I said, I appreciate what you're saying here, but what you're saying is, a, is an assumption or a supposition. What you did was a fact. I'd like to believe that I would have been you, but we'll never know because I was never called to do that. We all know, though, that you are who you are. And you deserve all the accolades. My generation and my, you know, in the world that I come from, F-15, F-22, 
we were doing no-fly zone enforcement missions over southern and northern Iraq. Uh, and it was a totally different experience. Now, where was I on September 11th of 2001? I was in Saudi Arabia. I was an F-15 pilot. I was actually the mission commander for all U.S. forces flying over southern Iraq the next day. So I was in charge of Navy coming out of the Gulf, Army on call in Kuwait, uh, U.S. Uh, Air Forces coming out of Saudi Arabia. But we were doing no-fly zone enforcement, so a totally different kind of mission. And it was um, it was just a different experience. I mean, my, my experience was... You know, what was that sure like that, coming out of that, man? Did they pull the reins off y'all and let you just arm that sucker up? No, because ultimately we were already armed to enforce the no-fly zone, right? So that so we we that was a daily mission, but the mission didn't change. We were just a status quo. We were a status quo element, and we continued to do that mission as things start to kick off in other places. Yeah. So it was just it was a different experience. It was a completely different. Um, you know, flying in hostile territory experience. Yeah. 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 And I mean, our biggest, our biggest issue was making sure that we didn't make the commander in chief's job any more difficult than it already was. Like let's maintain the status quo right. essentially was our, was our approach because he's got enough on his plate right now. Oh, and you don't think about that's, that's good. I've never thought about it like that, but when we get in and something like that happens, like a fight, then all the guys want to do is go and whip somebody's ass. Mm -hmm. And then you got the boss trying to figure out what's going on, how everything, and is it getting barked at from both sides? So if you got a good commander in chief, man, he'll sit down, look, listen, feel, examine before he goes in and does all that. Yeah. So what does an F-15 do? Yeah. So there's two different versions of F-15s. There's the air-to-air -air primary, like almost exclusive version, and then there's the one that do, does both, air-to-air -air and air-to-ground. So I flew the air-to-air -air version. So our job was to maintain air superiority, make sure that no enemy aircraft affects any of, of, of us. Okay. And air superiority has been very effective for in the United States. We've maintained it consistently since 1953. So since the end of the Korean war, essentially. Um, but that also means that if there is no enemy air force or if there's, if there's no threat to us, then, you know, you may not have very much going on and it's our ambition always to be part of things. But again, if there's, if there's no enemy aircraft to have to defend against or to attack, then, there may not be very much for us to do. Right. Not a so lot of action, a, but you're making sure there's not a lot of action. That's right. I mean, it would deterrent force for sure. Right. But I mean, we train to do the action. I mean, we're tra in our training missions, we're going out there, you know, treating each other like, like the threat, pulling nine times the force of gravity, ready to do all of the things we're supposed to do. Um, just waiting for, for the call. That's awesome. And there's a lot of waiting for the call in my experience. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> always. You always right. hear that. You never know what it means to you get in and there, there's situations that present itself and then those squared away chiefs will always throw that line out. Thanks. Hurry That's up right. Wait. And it's funny how our society rolls. Sometimes it'll, the, the violence of action will come in and then they'll want to see it to reaffirm them that they have it. And then they'll be, and then they'll say, well, Hey, yeah, lock it down. We don't want to see any of that. So, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, are we too that's strong right. or are we too lax? Yeah. Which one? Because there's going to be something that happens on both sides of that. And that's just, that's life, man. You know, I, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I, I reflect back, you know, when I was at the academy, one of the things, and I'm a big fan, my dad introduced me to a book called Once an Eagle a long time ago, written by Anton Meyer. It traces two people as they're going through, coming up through the ranks. One is a true warrior, one is a sort of politician. Um, warrior, so like not warrior, like total politician, and they're making their way through World War One, World War Two, and then Vietnam. And it's interesting in times of peace, 
it strikes me and it always has that folks will, you know, how do y'all play treat the game? when y'all get, the, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, when y'all yeah. get those guys in there, y'all have them too, right? Oh yeah. That's, and, and that's the, we got them. The, we, we have, I've seen a couple of them. And they rise when there's not much going on. What you need is you need to have the folks who are the, the warriors coming up through the ranks to be ready like to that. go out there. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like crossing the streams, man. Them dudes don't like, and the gals, they don't like doing that. And that it's, it's, it's a weird dynamic. It's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate yeah, dynamic, actually. It's weird. But what, 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 we, what we need is, is a constant stream of warriors who are ready to go forth and do. Um, and that's one of the things that there's a lull. You kind of tend to maybe lose a little bit of that, like it kind of fades away just a little bit. I mean, they're there, but, um, but the benefit of, of having something, a mission constantly, is that you keep the warfighters at the forefront. And that's what we as a nation need in order to be able to remain safe. Sure. That's where those crusty ass master chiefs and sergeant majors That's right. in, man. Them dudes. They don't like anybody. They you know, they're just they're, yeah. they're always grumpy yes. and their job is at a younger age you send them to them cuz nothing's ever right. Right. And it just keeps you in that stuck in this level to when you when you do get to see the the reality of what it is. There is a calmness in it. But at a certain age you're not supposed to see it. It keeps you sharp. I mean, if you yep. don't stay I, I I agree with that. I just that's a one valuable lesson. People always ask me, like, hey, what'd you learn in the military? What valuable lessons, man? Most of them, the good ones, I don't ever talk about. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bingo. certain guys for certain positions because certain people at certain times. You talked about that, man. It was like, hey, you had to have those guys. That's right. So we see in your file from 2004 to 2006, you served um, doing post-mission briefing. Did you actually get to, um, like, in wartime in Afghanistan and Iraq did you is that what you were briefing on or what was that about no so um probably the 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 biggest honor of my military career was being called to be an instructor at our fighter weapons school formerly Mm -hmm. now called the U.S. Air Force weapons instructor course but basically it's the Air Force top gun program and when I showed up as a young captain argue about that (laughs) y'all do don't you I mean of course we of course we argue about yeah, that. I mean, I just wanted to bring that to light. If y'all were wondering, <laughs> hell yeah, they do, man. These guys can argue about some crap. You got it's hilarious. Oh yeah. There is <laughs> so no why doubt. did they stop calling but, it the top gun? That's no, Navy. Oh. But, but but here's the thing. I mean, ultimate respect in both in both directions as sure, well. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So of course we're gonna give each other grief, but ultimate respect. And so when I came back as an instructor, which for me apex of the career like that's where you go to really really become well versed in in teaching uh i got there at a time when we needed somebody to teach the uh, post-mission debrief course the way that we practice accountability for our missions and uh of all the sexy topics that you could teach at a at a weapons school kind of a program that was the least sexy so i was not excited about it at all but i was also you know smart enough to salute smartly and, and do as i was told and that ends up being one of the best things that happens to me because since I was responsible for building how it is that we teach doing this, then I had an impact across the force. And it also shaped what it would be that I would eventually do later on in my life. I didn't know it at the time, but it was, it was a tremendous blessing for me. It taught me a skill set that we do not practice very well across the globe. How do we practice accountability in a way that helps us to do better on the next mission and inspire our teammates to want to try again? That's something that is a you would talk secret sauce like that's that is a key enabler to our success on the battlefield. I tell you what, when I go talk to the, the 
the corporations like you're, you're going to. That's the one thing they asked me about. And it was the I didn't get this when I was young. My chief always kind of hammered this. He's like, the most important thing we do is that after-action debrief. It was the most fun we had because you're all, all the guys are in there. Of course, we do it a little differently than the civilians might, but uh, we have a little bit more fun with it. But that's when you come at each other. That's when you're like, hey, this is what happened. He's like, what were you thinking when you did this? And and I mean, it really all, what it really does is opens up conversation. It it because that you you find your gaps and then people have answers for it and that's that's all that is don't that, that there should be nothing personal in in the interaction because that's what it was for it's that's like, right that's what you found out what it was all about is in there that's exactly right and the thing that differentiates the high performance team world that you and i come from is you have if this after action debrief thing is done correctly a bunch of people that are arguing over who's more at fault if things didn't go well and you contrast that with our society today and, you know, this this notion that I'm, you know, I'm always going to point the finger someplace else, you know, I, I, I can excuse or justify my performance, behavior, whatever else. It's not my fault. It's a, it's 180 out from the way that your teams used to take a look at post-mission, what it was that was, was happening. And what I thought was most amazing about being in a fighter squadron was that in our debriefs, we'd have people that were arguing with each other over who was more to blame when things didn't go well. Yeah. Not trying to, you know, say, hey, I'm, I'll take all the credit over here when things went well. Like that was a separate conversation and it also went differently. But when things didn't go well, you got a bunch of people saying, this is my fault. This is my fault. This is my fault. This is my fault. And the leader, the leader is step, stepping up and saying, no, actually, I own it. I'm the leader. I ultimately own yeah. this. It's and that is best. so special. Yeah. Right. It's the best stories, too, because guys will come out the way they say it. Like, you know, I was right here. And then and what? And they're like, what happened? Like, oh, I ran out of talent. Right. They'll say something, anything to throw off the dynamic, and you're kind of like, well, that's brilliant. I didn't, you can't fault them for it. I mean, if they just no. prepare about, like, hey, look, man, I just ran out of damn talent right there in the door, and isn't that what you're for? That kind of thing. And, and guys just, you're not making fun, you just learn. I don't know what that is, how that happens, man, but we do it. And guys yes. do it great. And I, I miss that so much. That's the one thing I miss, a freaking after-action DVD. So is man. that, I mean, I, I'm completely, a little background on me, Robert. I have no military background at all, and I learn something new every time I sit and listen um, to y'all speak. Um, do you do it like a, a post-mission oh, I've, every I've, time? Every time. Every single time. Is that like a week after or right, right after? after? Okay. I, you got you could drop your kid off. You could drop your kid off, hit the head, and then you're in there. So everything's That's right. fresh. I mean, we're in there. We talk a little bit with each other. We joke around a little bit, but then the boss comes in and kind of everyone squares it away. And then he immediately, you know, you have what the job was, what you're supposed to do, what happened, and then we kind of throw those together, man. It it's, has to be. If it doesn't happen immediately after, we're going to forget things or misremember stuff. Yeah, we yeah, cannot right. afford to do that, right? Especially when you think about how emotionally charged some of these things are. Imagine losing somebody on a mission. Yeah. If you don't immediately debrief it, which I think is counter to what most people in a you know typical business setting would, would, would think, like, hey, we need to give ourselves some time to, like, you know, throttle back and emotionally come to grips with whatnot. No, 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 no. If you do that, you're going to forget and you're going to misremember. And if you yeah. forget or misremember, then you're not going to draw the right conclusions. And that means that you're potentially carrying risk forward into the next mission, which for us is unacceptable. So it happens immediately. And at the weapon school where I was teaching this, uh, we would have 20, 21, 22 hour debriefs, depending on the phase of instruction we yeah. were in. And those were painful because whoever's leading it standing the entire time. And yet, because of how much value you're trying to extract out of every mission. And we, 
a weapon school mission may last an hour, of which 35 minutes was tactical execution. We'll debrief that for almost a day. So what are some of the, the best life lessons that you can take out of your um, post-mission briefs, debriefs, whatever, um, that you've implemented into daily life or into your book or your speeches or whatever you're doing now? Yeah, here's the first one. Don't ever do a 24-hour debrief. Like, that's, that's stupid. Like, like only, <laughs> only do that in school. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hey, here's, here's another one. <laughs> I, um, I, had a, I flew a training mission a million years ago uh, with an instructor who was brilliant, just an absolutely brilliant fighter pilot, one of the best fighter pilots I've ever learned from. And um, so the way that it works when you're coming up through the ranks, kind of learning how to do this stuff, you go and you lead all of these things. You lead the pre-mission planning. You give the pre-mission briefing. You lead the tactical execution. You lead the post-mission debrief. I had done all of that. My version of the debrief was a three and a half hour, we all suck conversation. I mean, and all I did is emphasize how much we sucked. He came up after I was done and he flipped it around. And he taught me something really important that day. He goes, how we frame this conversation really matters. And he goes, you know, you can beat people up and tell them how much they suck and they can learn from that. And that might work in certain circumstances. But another alternative might be, hey, Cujo, we were two decisions from victory today. And if you take a look at this, we had done this and this differently. We could have won this thing. And I remember coming off of his version of the same debrief going, hey, I, I actually believe in my abilities right now. And I think that we actually have what it takes to be able to come back and bounce back from this thing. He actually taught me how to be resilient on the heels of a massive failure. And that was a wonderful approach. Like how we frame the discussion, like you mentioned, Marcus, the importance of humor, the importance of being able to be, you know, like have levity it's at times that are potentially delivery. dark. It's like, that's a, that's wow. a special art form. That's a skill set. You know, and there's no training for that. You just experience it yeah, and that becomes part of the culture, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah, I learned that. That's another t key takeaway. And I try to apply that with my kids. Because if you think about it, I mean, we live in a really negative world right now. We're, we're being fed negativity, negativity, negativity. They're getting negativity all over the place. And I could continue to perpetuate that. Or I could tell my children that, you know, hey, look, look, at you did this right. You did this right. You did this other thing right. Imagine how much better today could have gone. Can you do that? you know, better tomorrow, they tend to, they tend to perk up. Yeah. And so that's, a, I think that's a really important skill set. It also shows that the after action debrief, imagine you plan your whole mission out or your day out and you know where the buildings are, you know, what's in there, but there's stuff you can't see, mm -hmm. right? There's variables that you can't see. That's what you find out when you go in there. And that's what we talk about. And we're like, Oh, that's what actually goes in that missing spot we didn't cover down on. So if you could run it three or four times, which we try to do in our heads, I mean, always think about something three or four times before you go do it, no matter what it is. That way your mind's already thinking about it. That way when you get in there, it's like a fight or anything else. You've already done it so many times, it's like a repetitive thing. You've, you've blotted out the mistakes that you normally would have made on the first advance. That's why we do that. And yes. um, most people don't. It's, no, it's, we. I mean, great point about harnessing the power of simulation. Man. Like we go into and we simulate, 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 so that when you actually go out there and execute, not only are you well rehearsed on what to expect, but you're so comfortable in the environment that you're ready for the pop-ups. Like you're so like yeah. your status quo is, I'm ready for something else to come at me because I've experienced so much about this scenario already that I'm that I can maintain my calm and composure when something that I didn't plan for. Uh, arrives over here. And I think about the application into other domains. I mean, most of the businesses where I teach this to, they, we don't do a lot of simulations, which I think is unfortunate because it brings everybody's anxiety down. It, it allows us to have situational awareness. Mm -hmm. We're calm, cool, and collected as we make decisions and pivots real time. It's a wonderful approach.
Basically, I'm like, if you play any sport, imagine walking onto the tennis court and just start trying to play tennis against somebody yeah. who's been playing a set already. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or anything they do. If that machine's already moving, I don't care if it's smaller than you and it's already spinning and that sucker's worked up. Anything that's worked up and, and going, you can't stop it. If you step in front of it, run right over your ass, I mean, it make you look foolish. Yeah. And by the time when we go out that door, God, they're so jacked up and ready to go. And if they're, you know, they got that, that voice in that head or that music or whatever is flowing with it, you can't bring them suckers down. Yeah. That's right. That's so interesting. Um, so after your military career, you, uh, you wrote a book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I wrote, um, I wrote a couple of books. Debrief to Win was the first one. Uh, I got out of the military at a time that was not of my choosing. I had colorectal cancer uh, when, I was, when I was living in Europe, uh, right before I came back to flying F-22s again. So that led to an early retirement. And I was in a really funky place in life. Because if you think back to since I was four years old, I knew that I existed to be a fighter pilot, right? Wow. I have a hard time accepting people's thanks because I got a chance to live what it was that I knew was me. And then all of a sudden that was ripped away. And I, I spent some time struggling with like, who am I now? What, what purpose do I serve here when I can't do what it is that I know that I was created to do? It occurred to me that one of the huge blessings of my life was being part of teams that mattered, being part of teams where it was very much a family, being part of teams that knew how to get the mission done, being part of teams that were incredibly resilient, being part of teams that kind of said, all right, disruption, come on, we're ready for you, and we're going to find a way to dominate. And so I, I made it a mission to teach that out in the world, and I figured it'd probably be more legitimate as a potential trainer, speaker, if I had a book. And so I wrote a book about the art of the debrief, how it is we practice those post-mission debriefs. And it's been very, very well received, and it's it's helped me to be able to get the message out and how to build a team that matters, how to build a team that can win. That's awesome. Somebody said one to my to me that imagine if all, everyone in the military we we all lived in the same neighborhood, and when you walked out the front door in the morning, like his, his house has a jet parked in the driveway, and your neighbor had a tank or something like that, and we and we all lived in the same spot. You can't That'd believe be awesome. how we yeah it, it would be. Right, how much we go at each other, but I mean, it's it's in a completely different dynamic than you see civilians doing it. Like when they say yeah. they say it to hurt, and we do too sometimes. But I mean, it, it's 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 also a reminder. It's weird. I don't know how we do that, but um, man, that was a blessing to to get that out and 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 earn. You got to earn that. That's right. You know, everybody yeah. I've seen just with all of Marcus's friends and everything, when people, when they get out of the military, they do lose this sense of purpose and the sense of, of teammate and all of that. But that's what family is for too. Not just the workplace, but I mean, that's like Marcus and I are our swim buddies now. Like we yeah. are the team now and our kids and, you know, like our parents, we are that team and we have to be able to rely on each other and respect each other and it took us a while to kind of figure that out but once we did it really clicked and now she had to say it to me like that she's like you went away to the military to, to get trained to come to me to do this <laughs> wise words I, I mean, when she said it like that i was like why do you yeah. lead with that I yeah like, i thought i had to be a husband and these kids yeah like, I gotta, you know raise them all day and all that stuff. I was like no that's your freaking assignment yeah, like the boys back at Warcom and in the military—that's your ass, and that's why they separate us. Yeah. They send us back into yeah. our towns to assimilate, 
to try and train everyone else around us. You, that's why we walk to walk. Don't talk to talk. Walk to walk. Back your wife up. Raise the kids. Get them to school. Is it fun? Sometimes no. Yeah, like but that's don't. a damn job. When is, there's yes. stuff we do in the military all the time. The cool stuff was we got to play with the planes and you know all that. And when a fight broke off, yeah, we were the ones that go whip everybody's ass. We come back and then now we're back undercover. Well, and if you think about it, like even just the post-mission debrief, like bringing that into just family life for our listeners, like that's what husband and wives can do when something. She's like, "Hey, we need to debrief. Yeah, we're not going to bed. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, we need to talk about it. And let's speaks my language. Let's figure out what we, you know, what can we do to avoid that situation in the future, instead of like harping on it and getting angry or whatever and letting that boil, like, let's just move on, figure out how we can avoid that in the future and move on and just never do that again. These are the wisest words spoken on this particular interview by far. And I tell you, (laughs) as a slow learner, like the person that needs that kind of guidance and counsel in my life to be able to be focused on the right things, I was 100% skewed towards, hey, team stuff is stuff that you do at work. I taught team stuff at work. I did not teach team stuff at home until I got cancer. And it was after I kind of reviewed how it was that I allowed myself to get cancer. I had a preventable form of cancer that turned into a, you know, crushing, I'll I'll never get away from this. It's always a reminder. I don't have a lower colon anymore. Turns out I wasn't teaming well at home. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I made a firm resolution that everything that I used to live and teach applies at home first. Why? It's the most important team that I've ever been on. And I owe it to the team to make sure that we're as tight as we can possibly be. And the neat thing is, is that I'd say our, our family team got a whole heck of a lot better as a result of my failure with cancer that caused us to focus where it is that we needed to. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for it. In fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rewind the tapes and, and play it any other way. I think everything happened the way that it needed to. And I'm very fortunate um, that, that my bride had the compassion, the grace, um, the patience to deal with me so that together we could learn how to become the family team that we want to be. Yeah. Oh, it always takes absolutely, something. Man. Yeah. You can't even believe what they're made of until we go into the, cause there's a form of human being that a military dude will turn into sometimes. <laughs> when our boys aren't around and the wives, I don't know. Yeah. Thank y'all. That's the hardest job. They don't get enough for payment. I mean, I don't. <laughs> Amen. Amen, right? 100% agreed. 100% agreed. We ought to be standing for the for the military family members uh, and celebrating them. Yeah. Well, I I met Marcus after he medically retired, but I his twin was still in, so I still like lived the deployments and all of that. And she got the um, worst worst version of me. <laughs> Bro busted, just separated from the boys off the line. I mean, just thought you want to talk about throwing her a wildcat. <laughs> You know what I mean? Had no, she had no idea when she was out there slumming for a bad boy, which one she picked up. <laughs> I let you know how far off the beat path she was when she came across my ass, bro, because I was woo, gutter cat wild. I believe it. Man. I mean, I, now here we are. I tamed him. There's a freaking chessboard. Good. On the table. <laughs> I broke Bravo. that wild pony. You know, well done. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on and um, just sharing that perspective because we never talk about that, and I don't think we've ever talked about it on our podcast. Which is most important. Yeah, is that... That's like the detail part. This is what they're talking about. It's impossible to bring out, usually. Yeah. 
But it really does, it, and it's something that's not just something that's very important in the military, but it can, it's every household should implement that. Every household should implement, like, teamwork and compassion and figuring out what doesn't work and make it work. Um, well, they, I think the problem is, is you, you tell guys that we get out. Like, I started telling all the guys, like, y'all never get out. You never you take that uniform off and get to somebody else. You're going to put their name on it, but your ass is in till, till we die. And guess what? In this movie, we all die. Yeah. Yeah. So just suck it up. We got, we got work <laughs> to do, man. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, no, I get it. I get it. But I tell you what, one of the, one of the best four star bosses I've ever worked for, he, he would come in every month and, and ask us on the, on the staff. He's like, Hey, what are you doing for the home team? Because you know, at some point, you're going to be done here. Whether you get out early, whether you retire, whatever, you're going you're gonna to be done. What are you doing to make sure that there's a home team to come back to? And if you're not prioritizing that, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It's four-star general saying that to me. You know, it, it really it kind of starts to hit home, and you start thinking about where your priorities are. And anyway, I'm, again, fortunate that I married up, and then I've got a wife who understood and was able to live through me. <laughs> like until I until I arrived at where I needed to be, matured enough to to be the the husband and father that I hope to be, and I'm still working on becoming. Yeah, that's good uh, stuff. Yeah, amen. That's that's perfectly put. Yeah. So can you let's uh, talk about what you've got going on now? Are you started a business, um, the Vmax Group? Can you just that's right? Let's tell our yeah, listeners we teach. about that. We we basically we teach how to build real teams that win. We take the principles that we lived. And we apply them into typically the business domain, nonprofit domain, wherever it is we've got teams that apply at home as well, harnessing the upside of, of real teamwork to build what it is that our country desperately needs right now. And that is to have people of hope and optimism and a better tomorrow, people that understand how to get the best out of their teammates, people who understand how it is that we make here special. And if we can do that, if we can spread that message around phew, at a time when there's so much negativity, then we're doing something good. And that's what we focus on. I, I think you just nailed the difference. Like all the, the business is back and you kind of see things going in, in, that, in, in a certain way. I was like, because there is a building, an awesome team, but you also need a component. You need an individual who can get it out of them. Mm -hmm. Like a battery, a plug. I mean, that's a real person. You can, yes. you can throw all the best people in one room, man, but if you don't have the person in there that can ignite them some guns, man, it won't work. That's a, that's a real thing. And most of them left when the wars kicked off. And, and even if they did come back or got discharged, and most of us did at ones and twos, we didn't come back together. That was the weirdest thing that we did on this one. We, we didn't get to come back together. It's like a hodgepodge. But we're mm -hmm. back now, and, mm -hmm. and everyone's here now. That's so you're, right. you're seeing what's happening. Like uh, while we were waiting to get back together, everybody got into charities. It's like every most everybody got into charities to create stuff for the boys and girls who were still in. And now once that's done, because charity hurts and it lasts, but then then you get you guys like, all right, what do you want to do now? I don't care if our boys and girls got started on a on a snow cone stand and wanted to make it an empire or, or create anything. If they put their mind to it, they can do it. Exactly. I mean, that's just the way it is. Bingo. Yep. As kids, we took down Babylon. Mm -hmm. We went back over to Babylon, took that sucker down, and then Afghanistan and everything in between. And now we're back here. We're in our mids. You know, what do we want to do? Shit. Whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want. That's right. 
Right. So how do people find you, our listeners? How can a business hire you to come on or buy your book or whatever? There's two places. Probably the easiest place is robertteschner.com. Last name's T-E-S-C-H-N-E-R. The other one is vmaxgroupllc.com. And VMAX Groups uh, is our company. So we've got several of us, former fighter pilots right now, that go out there and teach these principles and workshops and keynotes and making an impact. Making an impact, building real teams that win. Are you on social media? I am. LinkedIn is, uh, is the best place uh, for me there, although we're building the Facebook presence right now as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Oh, we yeah. appreciate job, you. Yeah. Hey, you. Well, I don't know if we got in. I didn't ask you this, man. Tell me about your call sign. Where'd Cujo come from? Oh, yeah. We need, a, we need an answer on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, somewhat unsatisfying. It takes about six months well, until you get your call sign. If, if you started it like that. <laughs> well, the only reason why I say it is, is that it's the tribe that names you. They tell stories about you. They they ask you for inputs. The stories have to be 10% true, by the way, that are told about you yeah, at your naming ceremony, right? There might be some adult beverages involved. And if you can avoid weighing in on, you know, every time that they're asking, hey, is that how it went? Is that what you th-? If you can avoid saying anything, you might waltz out of there with a cool call sign. If you try to influence it, it's going to be a bad one. Sure, sure. That, so yeah. all, all I can tell you is I can't tell you any of the stories that were told about why they named me Kuju, but the tribe picked it. They voted on it. I did not sit there and, and offer anything other than here's to the 58th fighter squadron. And until the day that I die, I prefer to be known as Cujo over Robert Charles. My mom never understood that, but it is. It was, it, <laughs> oh, there's always good stories behind it, for sure. There, the, bril- there are brilliant stories behind it. I don't, brilliant. I don't know. How, I mean, did you hear some of these, how they come up with that? I'm like, how? I don't know how we came up with half of the, the, the material and the rules and regulations, the unwritten ones that we have to get certain things is unbelievable. Yes. Well, I don't watch scary movies, but Marcus told me yesterday that Cujo is some dog that kills women and children or something like that. Yeah, is yeah. that right? Let me just say, do not fear. I'm more of a Benji these days. All right. Much more <laughs> post colon resection. I'm more of a Benji. But when you needed me to be a Cujo, I was a Cujo. All right. All right, brother. All right. Thank, thank you, thank you, you man. so much. God bless you for being tough. Thank you. God bless you too. Thank you so much for having me. You bet, man. Bye. Thank you all for listening in to another episode. We'll see you next week.